Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Things Episcopal, where we talk about anything and everything related to the Episcopal Church. This podcast was designed with younger folks in mind and as a space to learn more about the Christian faith with the Episcopal lens. So in traditionally Episcopalian greeting fashion, the Lord be with you. Welcome back, my friends. Um, It's great to have you listening to us on All Things Episcopal. Um, great to have you with us. And so, you know, today, I, if you saw the title, when you, whatever app you're looking at, it's three dudes talking about Boss Lady. And Boss Lady being uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is, of course, referred to as Our Lady. So, you know, she is Our Lady. And uh, to the extent that she is um, the mother of the church by being the mother of Christ, I'd say she's our boss. Um, can I get an amen on that, guys? Amen. Amen. My dudes. So so we're gonna so we three dudes are gonna talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so first, why don't I uh introduce why don't I let the, the other dudes introduce themselves? Father David, you know, you and I are both fathers and we're both David, so it's really like we're just twins, just a few years apart. Just a few years. Um so I am Father David Wilcox. I am the youth missioner for the Diocese of West Missouri. Um, I have been an Episcopalian for almost 10 years now. And before I joined the Episcopal Church, I spent time in both the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. So I have always been a bit of a mama's boy when it comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Amen. Tristan, uh, what would you like to tell us about yourself? Um, I am a former Jehovah's Witness. Um, I was a ministerial servant, which is like their version of a deacon. Um, I left the church about um, two years ago now, and I became a Episcopalian, baptized and confirmed a year ago, a little over a year ago on All Saints Day. Um, So a uh, newfound mama's boy for the Blessed Virgin Mary. (laughs) Well, thanks be to God, and 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 I, I think it's only hasn't been that long, so I can still say welcome. It's good to have you in the family. So, you know, when we talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Anglican Communion and particularly the Episcopal Church, um, I think it would be fair to say that 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 discussion of the BVM has not always been without some controversy, because there were there were issues regarding the Reformation and. And misunderstandings that kind of that she kind of got mixed up in, and so I think it would be great. And what the way this discussion is going to work is we're gonna it's going to kind of have three basic questions: uh, What does the Bible say about Mary? Uh, what does the Episcopal Church teach about Mary? And then, in in what ways do visions of Mary still? In what ways does the boss lady still care for us. Um, and we can talk about visions, including one that's really particular to the Anglican tradition. So that's kind of where we're going. And obviously this is, uh, you know, uh, some of us are going to lead a discussion here and there, but, you know, the three dudes, we're going to jump in wherever we want to jump in. So, uh, so Father David Wilcox, what does the Bible say about Mary? Yeah, so... Um... Starting kind of from the beginning, the first reference we get to Mary in the book of Matthew uh, comes in chapter one. Um, 
in the genealogy and birth of Jesus, um, we have the reference from Isaiah about a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then we see in chapter two of Matthew, um, the appearance of the wise men um, and you know, they go to Bethlehem to meet Jesus, um, who is being cared for by his mother. Um, and then we see Mary and Joseph flee into Egypt. Um, so that's just a little taste in Matthew. But a lot of what Scripture says about Mary comes uh, more so from the Gospel of Luke, um, where we see um in the first chapter of Luke, uh, the first and second chapters of Luke, uh, pre-birth narrative, the Annunciation of the Angel Gabriel to Mary, um, where Gabriel comes and, and says that Mary has been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary, very importantly, and I think sometimes this gets lost, says, yes, you know, I am a person of faith who has been shaped by the narrative of God's redemption, the prophecies foretold uh, from the beginning, and I am willing to be used by God in this way. So we have that, that, that very important clause, here I am the servant of the Lord, uh, be it done to me according to your word. And without that clause, uh, cons- the, the consenting clause of the incarnation, um, our redemption would not have been able to happen. Um, so Mary plays a key part and is not just a, um, you know, domicile recipient of, of God's word and God's plan, but is an active participant. Um, Absolutely. And it, and it would have taken a lot of courage for a young unmarried woman in first century Palestine to, takes the risk to agree to to bear the Son of God um, in the face of all of the cultural norms of the time and place. Um, but it was a leap of faith. Um, so that's kind of, I think, the important place to begin. Um, and then the next reference we see to Mary in Scripture is uh, when she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth who has also been visited by the angel and who is pregnant with John the Baptist. Uh, and when Elizabeth greets Mary, she says, how can it be that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So we have a um, almost instantaneous acknowledgement of Mary's role almost immediately after we see the story of the Annunciation and, and scripture. And that greeting by Elizabeth harkens back to a, a a greeting in the Old Testament when the Ark of the Lord comes to um, is is received into a town, and um, so there is a parallel there between the Ark of the Covenant, which hosted the presence of God um, in the in the Old Testament, in the in the Hebrew Scriptures, and Mary as Ark of the New Covenant, because she is the one who bears Christ. Um, and then you have Mary's great song of praise in the Magnificat, which also occurs in Luke. Luke gives us a lot of our, our Marian imagery 
And this is a prophetic song hearkening back to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel, where Mary um, foresees the ways in which God, through the child she bears, will turn the established order upside down. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of, of poetry um, that becomes a key part of the church's liturgical tradition, and we'll touch on that later. Um, and then we have the presentation of Jesus, where Mary and Joseph take Jesus at 40 days old to be presented in the temple as, as um, required in the law of Moses. And um, they are greeted by the, the prophets Simeon and Anna. And um, Simeon tells Mary to ponder all these things that she will experience in her heart. Um, so that's another, another key piece of Mary's ministry is this quiet reflection on, on who Jesus is and, and what Jesus does. Um, and then I think an, uh, another key piece of what scripture says about Mary comes from the gospel of John um, at the beginning when Jesus and this new band of followers um, attend a wedding. And uh, Jesus has not quite come out yet as you know, the Messiah and the hosts of the wedding run out of wine. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, do something about it. And they have this beautiful back and forth where Jesus says, it's not quite my time. And then without even responding to Jesus, Mary just turns and looks at the attendants and says, do whatever he tells you, um, knowing that Jesus will follow through. Um, kind of that image of a persistent um, mother um, who, um, but also a great command of discipleship, uh, do whatever he tells you. And this is something Mary both tells us, but also models for us. Um, then another really key piece of scripture that harkens back to Something Father David said in the intro about Mary being the mother of the church is from John chapter, I believe it's 26 in the crucifixion narrative, when Jesus from the cross looks down and sees his mother, Mary, who is standing by the cross and the beloved disciple, um, who we often identify with the evangelist John, um, says, woman, here is your son, and then looks at John and says, here is your mother. Um, but the important thing to remember there is that the beloved disciple is a literary tool that is used to infer the reader. And so in that way, Jesus is giving Mary to the church and the church to Mary. So it, it's from there that we I think rightly call Mary the mother of the church um, because we were entrusted to her and she to us through this beloved disciple. Um, and that beloved yeah. disciple is each one of us. That's right. Uh, Tristan, given your background, you know, as a Jehovah's Witness for much of your life, I wonder how what you heard of Mary in that tradition and what, how your appreciation changed as you came into the Episcopal Church? 
Um, she was honestly barely talked about, as you would probably expect from some more like fundamental um organizations and everything. Um, I mean, obviously there was a certain respect that was there as the person who was privileged to bear uh, Jesus, but the the whole issue is. As a Jehovah's Witness, you don't believe that Jesus is God. So, you know, there, there's that major um, distinction, we put it that way. Um, but there was something that um, was just mentioned, the do whatever he tells you, that I thought was interesting coming into the Episcopal Church is, you know, Jesus, like Father David just said, hadn't revealed publicly to everybody that he was the messiah yet he said it wasn't his time now obviously the turning water into wine has a lot of deep theological truths to it if you like really get into the miracle but overall in that particular situation that was a pretty trivial thing to uh intercede with and that just shows to me the power of mary's intercession that something even as trivial as or seemingly trivial as turning water into wine with something as big of a deal as revealing that he's the Messiah um, and starting his mission. He was willing to do that for her. That's right. You know, the, and then the, the last place that Mary's mentioned in the New Testament is, at the, is in the first chapter of Acts, where it said that there were over a hundred of the believers who were waiting in Jerusalem because Jesus had told them to wait. This was before Pentecost, and it's and it mentioned specifically that Mary was with them and 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 they were praying. And so, you know, so we know Mary was there helping and guiding the church as she could. Now, you know, here we are, three dudes talking about Lost Lady. And of course, one of the it, it's sad that there's that's all we have of Mary. It's it's and the same thing can be said of Mary Magdalene. Right, because clearly Mary Mary Mags was so important, was very important in the church, just in the little snippets that we have of her. And yet, it was an extremely patriarchal society. Um, just practically speaking, a movement being led by itinerant women preachers probably would not have been able to get off the ground. And that's not that's not good, at, but that's just the way it would have been. And so the the movement pretty quickly gets taken over by the guys. And so the story. That that got written down becomes one about the guys, and so there's a lot we don't know, of course, about Mary. Uh, there are traditions that it's it said that John went to uh, Ephesus in modern day Turkey, and that therefore Mary would have been with him in Ephesus. So, so with that, so we have just a few snippets of scripture, a few clues in scripture, but because there's not a lot of scriptural information, then there has been a there has certainly has been theological reflection in the in the years in the in the times since about Mary's role um, in the church and in the story of our salvation, and so that kind of brings us to what does the church teach about Mary? And I would start going back to and really, if you think about it, other than the Magnificat, the only conversational words that we have attributed to Mary blessedly, are, do whatever he tells you. And so it is important, I think, to emphasize that everything Mary does 
says did points back to her son. You know, she doesn't try to claim that she is more important than Jesus. Everything she does points to uh, Jesus. And to bring in another source, you have in the Second Vatican Council, um, in their constitution on the church, um, Lumen Gentium, Light of the Nations, they had a postscript chapter on Mary. And the word that comes out time and time again is her cooperation. In fact, at one point, what's referred to is her singular cooperation with Jesus. First, by bearing him, by taking the risk of an un, you know, a, a, of a betrothed woman, but not yet living with her husband, suddenly being pregnant and the risks that she was taking. She, at least technically under the law of Moses, she could have been stoned to death. Um, we're told Joseph didn't want to try to do that. Joseph wanted to do it quietly, but still she took an incredible risk. Um, and she, she, as we saw in John, she trusted Jesus. She even followed him all the way to the cross. I mean, that, that there's a, there is a cooperation in this, in Jesus's ministry of reconciling the world to himself through his death, that she, again, her cooperation was just singular, greater than anyone else's. So when we but when we get to the questions of doctrine and what the church teaches, well, we are. I, I, I sometimes say to folks, Episcopalians are are people of the book, the prayer book, um, and the prayer book. You know that the prayer book is where we is. If you want to know what we believe about things, it's in the prayer book, and there are a number of places in the prayer book that, both in formal doctrine and in our liturgies, that illuminate what we what what the church teaches about Mary. And one of those things that I and I think it's it might help people to know that way in the back of the prayer book, um, on page eight sixty four, you have it's a section called historical documents of the church, and of course they're like in four 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 type print, uh, but the first doctrine is called a definition of the union of of the divine and human natures in the person of Christ, and it's from the the Council of Chalcedon that took place in the year 451. And it was basically trying to settle once and for all, was Jesus the human being? Was he also fully divine? I mean, there were, and so there were people who tried to say, well, he might've had, he might, that, that divinity might've been infused into Jesus of Nazareth at some point, but come on, he was a guy, he was in the womb. He was a baby. He couldn't have been, God in the womb, but the council, but the the Catholic Church, the bishops got together and agreed. They even gave Mary the title Theotokos, which is Greek for God bearer, which is to say she is the mother of God. She bore, and that's saying that this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, and here we are. I think it's great that this is kind of our Christmas episode, you know. Um, because it's all about the incarnation. And then this is the ultimate statement that Jesus, the human being, was fully human and fully divine. And we and, and that when we call Mary the mother of God, the God-bearer, that's emphasizing the incarnation that wasn't just some infusion of divine attributes into this human being. He was fully human and fully divine from the moment of his conception. 
And so that's sort of the formal teaching that we have about Mary, that she was the mother of God. And again, she's pointing to Jesus in the incarnation. And so much of our liturgy where she's mentioned is, again, pointing to Jesus. Um, You know, we have, if you, you know, again, it's interesting how I look at the back of the book and I look at the front of the book. And the very front of the book is where you have a lot of the information about why we, why we, why our calendar is the way it is. And I recommend that to folks. And so, um, so we have, there are several, what are called feasts of our Lord, the presentation, the annunciation and the visitation that are also in a sense, feast of Mary, because she's an important part of those feasts, the annunciation where, as David so eloquently put out, she said she was given, she was asked, Will you be, will you take on the role of starting the story of the salvation of the human race? And given all the personal risks that were entailed, she said yes. Um, The presentation where um, she brought Jesus to the temple and and really had the first inkling of how hard this was going to be. Uh, What does, remember what Simeon says, "A, a sword shall pierce your own soul as well. Uh, the visitation, where in a sense, and really the first, really the first manifestation, because what happens when when Jesus, when she says, calls out Mary, and Mary's got John the Baptist inside her, and John kicks. It's as if John knows Jesus is there, that his cousin is there, and so those are feasts of our Lord. But in our liturgy, our main um, our main commemoration of Mary is on August fifteenth. That's when we remember. St. Mary the Virgin, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the collect that I'm going to go ahead and read. O God, you have taken to yourself the blessed Virgin Mary, mother of your incarnate Son. Grant that we, who have been redeemed by his blood, may share with her the glory of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now, What's interesting is there that, that very beginning where it says, "Oh God, you have taken to yourself the Blessed Virgin Mary." Now there's there's a hint there of something else going on. Um, August fifteenth is also the day in which the Roman Catholic Church celebrates the feast of Mary's Assumption, and there's sometimes there's some misunderstandings about what that means. Basically, what that means is the belief that after Mary had physically died, her body was assumed into that sphere of existence, that dimension that we call heaven, where Jesus already is with his risen body, so that she becomes the first human being to share in the resurrection of the dead. And there she is in body and soul. Now, you know, I, I, I talked about scripture. Right, Scripture does not, unfortunately, tell us a lot about what happened to Mary after Jesus had ascended, and 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 you know, and being the Episcopal Church, being both Catholic and Reformed, you know, and, and as Father Wilcox knows full well, because he just did this very fairly recently, when we when we are ordained as priests, we do vow that we believe Holy Scripture to contain all things necessary for salvation. So. Since the assumption, since there's no mention of the assumption in the Bible, 
that's not something that as an Episcopal church, we can say, we we can't put that in our liturgy as if to say, this is something every Episcopalian should believe. Now, personally, I think it happened. And the reason I think that is that, you know, um, there are lots of places around the world where people will say, well, this apostle's buried here, or this apostle's buried there. You can even go to Malabar in India where they will tell you this is where St. Thomas is buried because the tradition is that St. Thomas got all the way to northern India before he was martyred. And there's a church today called Martoma that considers Thomas to be their apostle, their found their founder. There's no one, there's no place anywhere that anyone claims to be the burial place of Mary. And I just think it um I just think it fits that if there's anyone, if there's any human being who would be the first to share in Jesus' resurrection, it would be her. But again, I, I want to make it clear, uh, I'm not saying, as Father David Kendrick, you should believe this. I'm not I'm not speaking for the Episcopal Church, but it is what I believe. So I don't know, how, how do you all, what do you all think about that? I think it goes back to, um, you know, we've said over and over again already in this episode that Mary is constantly pointing to Jesus. And I think it's important to remember that every doctrine that touches on Mary from her virginity and the virgin birth to to this notion of her being taken up into heaven and sharing already in the resurrection life, um, these are not primarily these 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 doctrines are not primarily about her but they're about Jesus. And, and in the case of the assumption or the Eastern Orthodox would call it the Dormition and it's celebrated on the same day, um, come out of a tradition uh, dating back to at least the fourth century. Um, and really said, and that, and that tradition really says that just as Mary was the first person to uh, believe in, in the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus, um, as she was the first disciple. So she shares the first fruits of the resurrection life, but not because she is who she is necessarily, but as a promise to us that we also will share those things. Because in a way, Mary is a type of the church. She represents mm -hmm. the fullness of the church. And so... Yes, she's worthy of these things, I think, but it points to a greater spiritual truth of the promise that we all have in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Amen. Tristan, what do you think? And I, I was just thinking, I mean, we, of course, like you mentioned, like at ordination and just with our view of doctrine in general, we can't be dogmatic about things not in scripture but in general i think we all pretty much can agree that holy tradition counts for something and these dates didn't come out of thin air that's right uh, and so yeah i mean would my faith be shattered if i found out that this didn't happen of course not but it's um i think a pretty safe bet to um I guess, believe it until there's any evidence against it. But in general, if holy tradition from both our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and our Eastern Orthodox 
Like there's there's a lot of um, evidence behind that. That's right. And so when we think of and then we, if we think of other liturgical commemorations, I mean, probably for anybody who 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 keeps the daily office in any way, shape, or form, um, it has long been the tradition in the Catholic Church. And by Catholic Church, I mean that historic church that's called itself Catholic since at least the early second century, which includes it includes us Anglicans as as people who have maintained those Catholic traditions, includes the Orthodox, the Roman Catholics. And so the daily office, which has been kept in the church forever, um, the evening prayer, you know, we, you know, our our daily office consists of psalms, scripture readings, and then responses to the to those scripture readings in the form of what are called canticles which are basically songs of scripture and in the evening it has always been traditional to to sing or chant or say the song of mary the magnificat uh from magnified or you will lord that her song from after the visitation when she had confirmed that god was god got this you know uh, whatever else was going to happen, God got this, and so she sang to God. And it's um, and 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 you see in there her concern, and really reflects God's concern for all of us, because so much of the Magnificat is really, in some in some senses, countercultural to our our culture of you know sort of glorifying the rich and the acquisitive, because so much of the rich, so much of her song is about, well, God, you you've you you've shown the arrogant, yeah, right. They're just desserts. You 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 fed the poor and sent the rich away empty, um, and you've kept your promise to the children of Abraham. Um, you know, remember that she was she was marrying uh, Joseph, who was descended from the house of David, and so I think she was aware. I'm I'm sure she must have been aware even before the Annunciation, the importance of that of being. This promise that had been made originally to David, you know, your you your throne will your dynasty will last forever, your kingdom will be established forever. And of course, she bears Jesus, and then Joseph, heroically, by accepting that and adopting Jesus, makes Jesus a son of David. Um, and so we so it's so we pray reg, you know, we regularly, you know, uh remember Mary um in our commemorations. And we and we do say prayers to Mary, and that kind of brings me back to the question of what's called the communion of saints, which so, again sometimes is misunderstood. In fact, I even I, I, I it was one time I I'll talk about the the statue of Our Lady of Walsingham at St. John's, where one time I lit a candle and and someone posted that on Facebook, and then another Episcopalian got pretty offended. Actually, thought we were praying to Mary. And I just said, well, no. I mean, the, the the classic prayer is the what the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blesses the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now, for, for us sinners now in the hour of our death. Amen. We're not, you know, Mary is like the other saints in that we don't we don't say, hey, Saint so-and-so, will you do this? It's more like saying, hey, Tristan, would you pray for me? Well, we're just saying, Mary, would you pray for me? You know, but she's part of that communion of saints. And so uh, 
what the how the what the prayer book defines is that the fam the whole family of God, the living and the dead, bound together and in, in by sacrament and prayer and praise. So that kind of brings us uh, any I, I, before I jump. Uh, any other thoughts that y'all had on on kind of tradition and Mary? Yeah, I was just gonna say another uh, liturgical feast we keep is that of her nativity, uh, which is a, a recent addition to our calendar. Although the tradition of the feast goes back to the early centuries of the church. Um, but I think it's important to note because the only people who have their, uh, their, their birth recorded as a important moment in the history of salvation are, are Jesus, Mary and, and John the Baptist. Um, and that they're so, so the, I think that's important. Um, but touching on that, that communion of saints, um, that, um, you know, we come out of, out of the Reformation tradition and, um, and one of the things that the early reformers were rebelling against was the excesses of medieval Roman Catholic, uh, devotion to the saints and, uh, and the common misconceptions that many people held about what the church taught about those things. Um, but in our own book of common prayer, one of the prayers that's appointed uh, as a concluding collect for the prayers of the people at the Eucharist um, talks about the saints supporting us in a fellowship of love and prayer. And, and, and all of the reformers, I think, at least the majority of them, Luther and all, uh, would have agreed that the, the, the saints are praying for us, that like, that is what the saints are doing. That, that is touched on in the book of revelation and, and John's description of what's happening in heaven. Um, the historic question has been whether or not the saints can hear us when we ask them, uh, to pray for us. Um, but, but nobody, I think, um, and that, you know, that's a matter of theological opinion, but nobody's, um, debating whether the, the fact that the saints are interceding for the church on earth. So that is, um, yeah. I think just part of our, an interesting part of our history to touch on and yeah, where we are currently um, in terms of the doctrine of the Episcopal church. Mm -hmm. I was going to say too, as a, I guess, kind of personal experience with asking for intercession. So some people I know have a hard time with the idea of a paternal father figure. And, you know, Blessed Virgin Mary is not a replacement by any means for praying to God. But there is something to be said. If you're like me, so based on my childhood, my dad is a very compassionate person. But I remember as a kid, whenever I broke a rule or did something wrong, straight to my mom with that because <laughs> it's, uh, you know. Yep. We talked about earlier bit of a mama's boy so sometimes whenever that would happen you know you still have to talk to dad yeah but the go-to thing in that situation is hey will you at least stand there with me and that's yeah. kind of how i see asking for the blessed virgin mary's intercession is will you stand with me while i pray while i talk to god 
and and by God's grace, that's there for for all people, including those who might have a trouble approaching. And I think in some ways that may have happened in the Middle Ages with Jesus. I think sometimes, you know, in the sacrament, in the Middle Ages, people got almost so awed by the mystery of the Eucharist that people wouldn't take communion more than a few times in their lives because they just felt unworthy to do it. And I think that in a way that, so that that opened a door for what I refer to as visions of Mary, that uh, there were several visions recorded. Uh, in the Middle Ages. More recently, there have been visions that the Roman Catholic Church has basically verified as being supernatural and not in conflict with the doctrines of the church. And the three that they have, that those have been verified are at Guadalupe in Mexico to Juan Diego, um, Lourdes in France in the 19th century, and then more recently in 1917, Fatima in Portugal. Now, we don't have a an office of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith that verifies these things, but it does, it, it, and the, where we can end here is it, in, in what ways that we can have access to Mary, and that does lead me to uh, what, what's called, what's who's known as Our Lady of Walsing. And it's a story that I'm, some people, even today, I was just having a conversation today, and someone didn't really know, well, how who, where where did the story start and didn't understand the connection to Mary? So, so Walsingham's a town in England, and somewhere in the eleventh, I think it was somewhere in the eleventh century, perhaps there was a, a noble lady named Rochelda who lived who who was the noble lady who kind of was in charge of the town of Walsingham. Her son returned alive and unharmed from the Crusades, and he regaled her with stories about what he had seen in the Holy Land. And then according to the story, uh, that night, Rochelda had a dream in which she believed that she had seen the house in Nazareth where Mary lived. And so the next day, she began building a replica of that house. (laughs) And and then around that house, eventually, uh, there was a, a a monastery and a convent, and then it became a. And by the late Middle Ages, it was one of the most popular uh, pilgrimage sites in in Catholic Europe. Uh, the shrine to Our Lady of Walsingham, and there was a statue made where. And I sent you guys a picture of the the statue we have in our, at St. John's. Uh, where you see Mary holding Jesus and pointing to him because she holds him. She kind of holds him with one hand and points to him with the other. And uh, a little detail, I don't know if you noticed, uh, and she has her she has her foot on a frog. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Now, you know, why is that? Well, that goes back to uh, in Genesis after the fall where God says to the woman, you know, that your 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 progeny will bruise the serpent's head. And that was often seen in the Middle Ages as a foreshadowing of Mary, you know, bruising the serpent's heel by giving birth to the Son of God. Well, I suppose, if you think about it, you know, what what are there not a lot of in, in England? Snakes. But there are frogs. So, you know, <laughs> if you're gonna have a reptile. 
that that whose head is getting bruised. I guess it's it's a frog. <laughs> um, now, unfortunately, again, here's where the controversy starts. Uh, you know, in in the controversies of the Reformation, the more hardcore Protestants uh, basically uh, burned the entire shrine down in the 16th century. Uh, blessedly, uh, there's now a Roman Catholic shrine and an Anglican shrine that uh, to Our Lady. So those have been restored, and so it's not a it, it's not a recognized feast in the Episcopal Church. At one point, in some point, it might be interesting if we can get a movement started to start and act to make that a feast. But we do know um, in the Church of England, September 24th is the day in which we commemorate. Our Lady of Walsingham, and what I do at St. John's is, um, I'll, I will, I will use one of the propers for one of the feasts of Our Lord, either the Annunciation or the Visitation. So I'm using the prayer book, and I'm using those prayers. But the occasion that I am commemorating is Our Lady of Walsingham. So that's kind of how I do it in a way that is, I'm upholding my vow to be loyal to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the Episcopal Church. So. So I think there are visions, and I and I and I and I'm and I, and I really identify. I, I'm a mama's boy too. I get it, <laughs> you know. And um, you know, and so yeah, I think we we need our mamas, and and Mary is our mama. And if people and whatever, and if that's a way for people to be able to approach God through Mary, I say more power to them. I mean, what do you all think? No, I totally, I totally agree. I will say, I think it's uh, worth pointing out that the vision uh, that Juan Diego had of Mary and and, Guadal- and Guadalupe, Mexico, um, Mary appeared as an indigenous woman, um, and um, I think that's that's worth noting. And in a time of colonial oppression. Um, she didn't appear as a white Spaniard or she appeared as a, as a, as a indigenous woman. Um, and that commemoration, Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is uh, December 12th, um, is an authorized commemoration in the Episcopal church through the, uh, the most recent book of occasional services. Right. Um, and we are, and we will be having a diocesan celebration of that feast on uh, the afternoon of Sunday, December 10th. Um, with our with our two Hispanic congregations, um, but I, th- I think that's worth pointing out that you know whatever your opinion on the visions of Mary at these places, um, they have become such a major cultural part of Christianity for a lot of people, um, and point to something. I think that's worth remembering like God's um, identification with the poor and the oppressed, Um, regardless of whether you think Mary actually appeared to the people claiming that she did or not, there's still value to be taken um, from those stories. And that even in the Roman Catholic church where these things, you know, are officially verified, they're still not a binding article of faith on people's conscience. And I just, I think that's worth. So, so if the idea of Mary appearing to people freaks you out um know that that's okay and that there's still um value that can be taken from the stories even if you don't think she actually appeared to the people um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And, and um, I, th- I think I, I kind of, I really appreciate what Tristan said in that, you know, um, no one here, I don't think any of us are saying that are telling anybody out there, you should go right now and build a shrine to our, to the blessed Virgin Mary. And you need to pray to her every day. You know, we're not commanding anyone. We're not trying to tell anyone that if, if your sense of piety is different, uh, th- then that's perfectly fine. Um, and again, nothing that I, that I, and, and I was kind of conscious going into this, that nothing that I, that I didn't want anything to be said that would imply that Mary has a role independent of her son. Um, but I, I think going back to what we said earlier, there is no one who ever cooperated more singularly than she did. There is no one who risked more than she did, who suffered, who bore more pain than she did, both physical and uh, emotional. And so if there is anyone who, who, who by God's grace has been made worthy to to share in the resurrection of the dead, first and foremost. And if there's anyone who will point us to that baby whose birth we're going to be celebrating in a few weeks, then it's Mary. It's 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 the boss lady. So that's that's my final word. Any final words from you guys? All right. Well, thank you all for listening. And I believe this is, I think this is going to be our, probably the last episode that we, that uploads before Christmas. Um, So, you know, I know we're, we're recording this. It's not quite Advent. And so uh, I, I, I'm going to wish everyone out there listening a blessed uh, Advent, a a blessed looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And then as we get closer, I I pray that um, you may enter more fully into the story of our redemption, enter more fully into that journey uh, that began with the Annunciation of the Angel Gabriel to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Amen. Take care. Take care, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about all things Episcopal, visit campusministry.com diowestmo.org backslash all things Episcopal. All Things Episcopal podcast is a production of the Diocese of West Missouri in association with Resonant Media. The Lord be with you all.